because she did not have a male child mm. and trumped up this crazy, inaccurate charge and had her executed in the most vicious, cruel, disgusting, bloodthirsty way you can yeah. think of. This is the foundation of the Anglican Church. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Now, throughout the length of our show, over the last three years or so, uh, we have been doing a series of episodes from time to time on the history of Western civilization and specifically the church. And we've discussed at length what it looks like to have a biblical perspective on history. When we look at history, how do we understand it in biblical terms? Now, the last time we were together on this topic was episode 156. So it's it's been a little while since we've had our last episode together. And in that episode, we were talking about the counter-reformation of the 16th and 17th century, a time frame in which they were trying to draw people back to uh, Roman Catholic worship and that system in particular. This week, we are going to build on our ongoing narrative by talking about Henry VIII, King of England from 1509 to 1547. Uh, Henry represents for us a serious change, a turning away from the Catholic Church and turning towards the Church of England and, and reestablishing a more centralized form of Christianity, which is going to be really important to where we're going uh, from here on into the, into the rest of our series on church history. Now, of course, our guide on this journey uh, throughout church history is pastor and professor Greg Axe, author of Church History, this book right here, Church History, A Biblical Perspective. Uh, Greg has been with us from the very beginning, and we're really grateful to have him here today. Welcome yes, back, Greg. Always good to be here. Appreciate this subject. It's one of my favorites. Today's episode is going to be filled with little twists and turns. Yes. It's, it's an interesting moment in the history of England. An incredibly intriguing man, Henry VIII. And I say this at times when we're doing history, that there are certain key figures that you really need to pay attention to. And I mm -hmm. like to use sports analogies and a lot of things. And so if you're playing against um, Kobe Bryant yeah. Yeah. or Steph Curry mm -hmm. or LeBron James, you better know where they are on the court at all times. You better right. game plan for them. If you just say, well, you go ahead and you know, we'll, we'll let you, Steph, we'll let you shoot from the outside. He's going to hang 60 on you and you're not going to have any chance whatsoever. There mm -hmm. are some key people in history that you really need to pay attention to. And you got to know where they are and you have to look at them correctly mm -hmm. uh, through the lens of biblical principle in order to be able to understand how they are uh, and what factors they have. You need to know who origin is, mm -hmm. uh, was. You need to know who Constantine was and you need to look at him correctly yeah. That he did not bring Christianity to the heathen, mm -hmm. um, that he brought Catholicism and um, uh, all of the uh, problems with the state religion into this mix. Right. Yeah. You need to know Luther. You need to know about Calvin. You need to know about people like that. And Henry VIII is in that realm of people that you need to know about him and his children and what they brought in the 
the transition, as you said, from Catholicism to opening the door to get the Word of God to the ends of the earth through Mm -hmm. true biblical uh, Christianity. Henry himself um, played on the other team, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. Um, But the transition that took place during his reign, uh, culminating in his daughter Elizabeth, uh, was was the one of the major uh, uh, flips that brought the Word of God to the world mm-hmm. through the King James Bible and through the English uh, colonization of the world through through Christianity. Yeah. So, and Henry VIII is a key figure in here. You got to know this guy. Yeah. So, before we get into Henry VIII mm-hmm. and, and talk about his twisty turny uh, life, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about what we learned in our last time together okay. about the Counter-Reformation, mm-hmm. um, which was obviously a response to the Reformation. Explain to us what's going on right now in the history of Europe in particular, and the impact that the Catholic Church is beginning to have as they rebound from uh, the Protestant Reformation. First principle of history in my book, history is nothing more than a chess match. Mm-hmm. Uh, God moves and Satan tries to counter that. Uh, it's from, been going on from the beginning. It's clearly in the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was out form and void, darkness upon the face of the deep. The prince of darkness moved. You had, you had that principle is there mm-hmm. that uh, the spirit forces God and Satan are driving this thing, and God initiates and Satan tries to counter. So the Catholic Church had the world locked down roughly for about a thousand years, called the Dark Ages, the First Reich. Uh, And during that time, Catholicism was the established, not just religion, but political uh, dominance of the world at Mm -hmm. that particular time as well for a thousand years. Um, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Knox, Zwingli, others like that began to kick the door open. Uh, Gutenberg with the printing press, William Tyndale, John Wycliffe, people like that started getting the Bible into the hands of the common man. Mm -hmm. Uh, Luther uh, with his 95 thesis uh, began to, uh, they, they looked at this and said, well, this is the established church. This is the church that was founded by Jesus. It wasn't. But mm-hmm. that's what they had been told for a right. thousand years, uh, and it obviously over. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. A thousand. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but yeah. a thousand years is a long time. Enough time to establish a lot of tradition and dogma and convince a lot of people. Yes, yeah. and it, when that gets inbred for that length of time, it's really hard to turn that ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what happened was the, these guys got into the Bible and saw what the Bible said for itself, uh, for themselves. And when that happened, it turned lights on in their in their hearts and in their minds. Luther began to preach. Controversy took place as a result of that because he was challenging the authority of the Pope versus the authority of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these guys tied Rome up to the point where they uh, – it, it was a controversy embroiling all of Europe during that time. Right. The people started getting the Bible into their hands as well. John Wycliffe in 1382 produced the first New Testament uh, in English. Uh, William Tyndale, 1526, he's right. He's in the in the middle of Henry's reign as mm-hmm. well. Uh, these guys start putting the Bible out into their own um, uh, into the common language, and people right. start reading the Bible, and it's like. 
they've been telling us for a thousand years that this is, but the Bible says this, and it opened the eyes of the people. Mm-hmm. And Rome saw that and said, oh, no, 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 we can't have this. And they started countering to try to bring that back into control, as you said. And so mm-hmm. there was the Council of Trent, there was Ignatius Loyola and the Jesuits and all of those things that took place. And, and so God initiates, Satan counters. Mm-hmm. The Reformation is a movement of God to break the hold of the Catholic Church. That's a very simple um, look at it. Mm-hmm. And then the, the Catholic Church counters because Satan always counters. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to try to bring that back. And that controversy is now embroiling Europe right. for, all of, for this period of time in yes. the 1500s. Yeah. Uh, Martin Luther published his thesis in 1517. Uh, Henry was, became king 1509. Mm-hmm. So it's all happening at the same time. Yeah. And you can even, if you look at the history, you can even see Martin Luther commenting on the reign of Henry VIII. There, there's mm-hmm. historical records. These guys are talking about each other. They have opinions. Yes. Um, and so it, this is really because of uh, the accessibility of, the, of, of print mm-hmm. um, and um, the, the way in which they captured history, there is a lot of information. It's almost like it's not quite the internet age, but... but during this time frame, we have a lot of written record about what's happening, and so there's a lot to sift through, a lot of information. Yes, and the uh, the change that's taking place in the world, you mentioned internet, is is similar. Obviously, it's not the same thing, but with the printing press, 1456, Gutenberg invented the pr- printing press, and the first book that they printed off of there was the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with that invention, that is the most significant technological invention in the history of mankind, more than flight, more than going to the moon, more than internet, more than medical uh, technology, yeah. more than any In fact, any of, any that, of that, stuff. that stuff would not exist if it wasn't the accessibility of knowledge through the printing press. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And specifically knowledge of getting the Word of God printed and into the hands mm-hmm. of people where they can see it and read it for themselves, and it turns the light on. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot to say about Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. And so let's dig into it because I really like to spend some time at the end talking about the implications of his reign and yes. all the things that he went to. What does that mean for us? Right. So tell us about England's monarchy and and the politics of, of the time uh, in which Henry is being raised. There's obviously the family, uh, the, the Tudor family, and they're, uh, it's like any political kingship like that, it passes through the family. So the mm-hmm. family runs everything. Yeah. And the royal family of England at that time was headed by the Henrys. Uh, Henry VIII means there was seven of them before him, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so Henry VII would have been dad, would have been his father. He was the king before Henry VIII. And again, it's a long succession of this family um, controlling the uh, the reigns of power in England. Right. They're staunchly Catholic um, and tied to Rome because the whole world has been tied to right. Rome during this yeah. particular time. Okay, uh, Henry VII had a couple of sons. Arthur was his oldest, and Henry would have been his. Henry VIII would have been his. Would have been next. Um, so Arthur, being the oldest, would have been in line to typically be successor as the king of England after Henry the Seventh 
uh, was. He was married, Arthur was, to a lady by the name of Catherine of Aragon. She was the daughter of the King of Spain, King and Queen of Spain. Mm -hmm. The King and Queen of Spain at that time happened to be Ferdinand and Isabella. Right. Now, those names are very familiar to us because they're the ones who, A, were involved in the inquisitions mm-hmm. in Spain that we talked about on one of our previous episodes. And the other side, B, is that they were the ones that financed um, Christopher Columbus's voyages to the New World. Uh, he, he w- Columbus was Italian. He petitioned the Italian government for funds to explore, and they denied it, so he went to Spain and got mm-hmm. it from Ferdinand and Isabella. Uh, so just put it in context of you uh, of what's going on. Uh, you see things at this time, the world is changing rapidly, maybe mm-hmm. not as rapidly as it does today with internet and all that kind of technology and stuff where um, you know uh, we ha- we buy products and they have a shelf life of you know, 30 minutes. Um, Things change rapidly in our society. Things changed as significantly during this time, maybe not quite as rapidly, but fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, So 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue. 1509, Henry becomes king. 1517, Martin Luther posts his theses. 1526, Tyndale publishes his Bible. All of this is happening at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And Henry VII has these two sons. Arthur is married to Catherine. Arthur died. Yeah, shortly after being married. Just yes. a few years. So now we got a problem. Henry is now in line to become the king, but he doesn't have a wife. And he's like 10. Yeah. I think when his brother dies, he's like maybe he's, 10 or 11 years old. Yeah, he's not he's really young. He's not of marry, marrying age yeah. yet. Right. Uh, so that's why it takes a while for him to actually get married to Catherine. He mm-hmm. um, he became king in 1509, but he, he didn't marry Catherine until 1516. Right. So he's in line to be the king. However, we have a problem here because now Catherine and, and, and these marriages at this time were political. For example, I'm England, and let's say I get a little beef with with Spain, Mm -hmm. and I want to try to do something, but if I do, I'm attacking my wife's daddy. Mm -hmm. Okay? And so let's say Spain has a beef with England, and they want to do something while yeah. I'm attacking my daughter's husband. Right. Yeah, this so, was a way to, to for nations yeah. to appease one another and keep things kosher. Right. Yeah. Right. Solomon had, what, 300 wives and, and 700 yeah. concubines. Well, how do you think he got them? Right. Yeah, it was all it, di- diplomacy. Exactly. Yeah. He didn't put an ad in the paper and get them that way. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, Arthur is married to Catherine. Um, Arthur passes away. Henry is a young young boy at this particular point in time. However, there was a problem, and the problem was not necessarily biblical because they claimed it was. They claimed it was. The Catholic Church had a had a, a prohibition against marrying your sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Now, marrying your sister-in-law would be a little weird, but if her husband is dead, if your brother is dead, then he is, she is free to be married to, to whoever she will. Mm-hmm. Okay, So biblically speaking, in fact, there's that law of the kinsman redeemer under, uh, obviously, um, Spain and England aren't going to worry about that because it's biblical, but um, that that's in the Bible as well, where there's a provision for marrying a, a, a sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, but that happened, they appealed to the Catholic Church for that. 
uh, to exempt them from that particular law. When you're the Catholic Church and you're God on earth and you proclaim to be God on earth, the Pope has claimed to be God on earth, then you make the laws and you can change the laws whenever you want. Mm -hmm. So they granted the exemption so that Henry VIII could marry Catherine of Aragon and keep those bloodlines and family relationships together. Uh, So they appealed and they got that exemption for that time. In terms, of, in terms of foreign relations, yes, this made sense to everyone. Right. Uh, inclu- right. Including Henry, who mm-hmm. was very glad to marry Catherine, sure. um, who was slightly his elder. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. 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 So they got married in 1516. And the point with Henry was, uh, 1516 is when they got married. He became the king in 1509. Uh, but he wanted a son to carry on his lineage as well, Henry the Eighth had sons, or Henry the Seventh had son. Henry the Eighth wanted sons, yeah. And so he's got him. He's married now to Catherine, and, and they try to have children, and uh, several, you know, miscarriages, stillbirths, things like that. They only the only child they produced in their um, marriage was Mary, a daughter. Mm-hmm. This goes on for about fifteen, sixteen years and they can't have a son, and this is Henry's overriding desire to have a son to carry on his throne. Right. Okay. So after 15, 16 years of this, and again, not knowing that it was the man who determines the gender of the child, right. she, yeah. he's blaming her here? for this. Yeah. Right. It's his fault. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not anybody's fault. Right, but genetically. It's, it, genetically, it's him, yeah. but they didn't understand that at that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... He's blaming her for this, and after 15, 16 years of this, he wants to appeal to, to annul the marriage or divorce Catherine because mm-hmm. she can't give him a male heir. Now, it's, it's important to note here that mm-hmm. up to this point, Henry has been a loyal Catholic. He, like is, he is devoted. Staunch. He is devoted to the Catholic Church. Yes. In fact... Um, it was it received several privileges and honors from the Catholic Church mm-hmm. because of his theological writings yes. where that were in agreement with Catholic dogma and beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so he has been very true to the Catholic Church up to this point, but this this represents a, a breaking point. There becomes a power struggle and he is gonna he is gonna win. Right. Right. Henry the Eighth was one of the most arrogant, pompous narcissists that ever walked mm-hmm. planet Earth. Uh, rivaled only by the popes. And so when you get two guys together like that who think they are God on earth uh, and they start fighting with each other, it's gonna not, it's not gonna go well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Henry uh, appeals to the Catholic Church to annul or disol- dissolve the marriage uh, of Catherine. And the Pope said no. Again, when you're the God, when you're God, you make up the rules and you right. do whatever you want to do. So now you he, change them at will. He he was willing to hear Henry out, out, but it seemed like from the very beginning he already knew the decision that that he was going to make. Right, and the reason for it was political, just like the marriage was political. Mm-hmm. If I grant this divorce, then I'm going to anger Spain, and Spain is a solidly Catholic country, mm-hmm. and so I've got to flip a coin here and decide which country I'm going to anger. Am I going to anger Spain, or am I going to anger England? And he chose Spain over England. Yeah. Um, so he, the Pope said, no, I'm, I'm not going to do this to you. Well, Henry VIII throws his bottle out of the crib, 
and stomps his feet and mm-hmm. throws a, t- a two-year-old temper tantrum and says, yeah. oh, yeah, well, you can't tell me what to do. I'm the king. And it becomes this screaming, raving argument between two world leaders. Mm-hmm. Henry says, oh, yeah, I'll watch this. And he broke from the Catholic Church and founded the Anglican Church or the Church of England. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so before we get into the details yeah. of that, there's also a woman at play that motivates him as well. So he's got, he's not, doesn't just want to divorce Catherine. He's also got his eyes set on Anne Boleyn. He has her yes. successor in mind. He has her, yes. He, not only does he already have her successor in mind, as you said before, he's already multiple wife, concubine. Yeah. Things are going on which will be evident when we get into some of the details of this, he's having affairs with anybody he wants to because he's the king. Which is typical king behavior, of right? Uh, uh, like, but um, nonetheless, he's no different than the others. And so he's already looking for matches among his concubines that mm-hmm. would make sense. Yes. And in particular, um, was uh, close to the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also respected her because of how intelligent she was mm-hmm. and she from from what i can tell she she basically put him off for a long time he was kind of after her and and maybe had 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 a relationship with her sister yes but he was after Anne, and Anne was kind of like no no you better put a ring on it and um and he was drawn to her because of her intellect and and mm-hmm. um he enjoyed her company yes and she was protestant leaning mm-hmm. um if you want to call it that she had more a more of a biblical foundation in her life than than the Catholic foundation. Yeah, a lot of uh, her writings and her journals mm-hmm. express sympathies towards uh, Martin Luther and the, yes. uh, the other reformers. Yeah. Yes, and William Tyndale and yeah. others like that during that particular time mm-hmm. when it's going on. So, the Henry the Eighth ultimately had eight had six wives. Mm-hmm. This is the stuff that makes you just kind of cock your head to one side and go, really, people actually think these things and carry them out and do them? He had six wives total. He divorced two of them. Um, Jane Seymour died in childbirth, the mother of uh, Edward. Um, His last wife outlived him, thankfully, for her. Mm -hmm. And that leaves two, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. Both of them were beheaded. Mm-hmm. Now, 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 common decency, just normal thinking human beings. Your wife angers yeah. you, and you murder her in cold blood by beheading. Let's take a moment right here to hear from Pastor Mike Renault of Living Faith Boston. Hi, I'm Mike Renault, pastor at Living Faith in Boston, Massachusetts. And if you're considering learning the Word of God, Living Faith Bible Institute would be a good place for you. The good thing about LFBI is that you're not just learning from an academic standpoint. You're learning from actual practitioners that do, in fact, know the book. These are pastors and men who are leading churches, doing the work themselves, since they can give you a firsthand real-life knowledge of what it means to learn the Bible in that context. Some of you may have a call in your life for the pastorate uh, to be a missionary, to serve the Lord in other parts of the world. Living Faith Bible Institute can prepare you 
in a way that you can be equipped with the Word of God and given practical tools, being held accountable in your ministry right where you're at. If you're interested in learning more or you want to enroll in LFBI, go to lfbi.org. It's pretty twisted, but this is in Henry's character. So he, mm -hmm. when he comes into the throne, uh, it's common for him to just uh, make an accusation against someone that he disliked mm -hmm. and have them executed on the spot. Of course. So there was no judicial process. He no. was willing to circumvent the law. This was in his character. The thing that's really intriguing to me is that he did actually love Catherine. Mm -hmm. um, you could tell that there was, there was gr at least in that relationship, there was some grief in terms of um, how he perceived her and how things went down. Right. Uh, not enough to repent of what he was doing. Yes. He didn't behead her. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just divorced her. Right. Yeah. yeah. And isolated her away. Right. Um, but each, he, he grows, his temperament grows, sh you know, shorter and more out of control. It seems like the further along he gets in life and in this process of trying to have a son. Right. Um, he gets more extreme in his behavior. Mm -hmm. So he gets rid of Anne um, because, um, you know, she doesn't provide a, a son, mm -hmm. um, does provide a daughter. Yes, Elizabeth. Who come, yeah, who, who we'll, we'll come back to, mm -hmm. um, but doesn't provide a son. And so she is, you know, she is also divorced and annulled at the marriages. Is it a divorcement? It was a divorcement with Anne. And then is, she's done away with as well. Catherine was divorced and was accused of treason. Mm -hmm. uh, and here's how it happened. She was, he, he had it, like you said, it, it, he gets off the rails with this and he gets crazy. And he starts accusing everybody of everything. And when things don't go his way, then he's going to throw the accusation out and then use that accusation without any due process or anything like that. When you're the king, you don't need that. Uh, to execute anybody that he wants to execute on the spot. And this is his wife, who he's been after for a while. Like you said, he he, he enjoyed Anne's company, mm -hmm. and yeah. he liked her, and he loved her. And She was kind of a boss girl, though. He found out later on that she yeah. was kind of a—she actually was maybe smarter than him. Yeah. Which was problematic. Yeah, problematic. <laughs> um, but she's at the royal palace thing, whatever, one, one day, and— she happened to drop her handkerchief. A servant bent over and picked it up and handed it back to her. Someone saw that, reported it to Henry. Henry said, well, that means that they're having an affair. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that is treason against the throne. Understanding that Henry's having affairs with anybody he wants sure. during the same, during yeah. the time. And she, he, he accused her of having an affair, and that was the justification he had for taking her head off. Mm. Uh, I had the opportunity to visit London a number of years ago, and we went and toured that particular area. And I stood right there on the spot, and there's a plaque there and a little memorial and a marker on the very spot in which Anne Boleyn had her head cut off. And oh, I've wow. seen that. Mm. Um, and, 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 you know, you, you stand there, you go, oh, yeah, well, okay, this part of history. But if you stop and just consider for a minute, a man executed his wife. Mm. This is not a political enemy. Right. This is his wife because she did not have a male child mm. and trumped up this crazy 
inaccurate charge to do so and had her executed in the most vicious, cruel, disgusting, bloodthirsty way you can yeah. think of. This is the foundation of the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and it's it's sad to to see and, and it's shocking. But then you think, you know, in terms of his psychologically, he came mm-hmm. into the throne as a as a boy. Yeah, and it, he had to have been incredibly in, insecure. Yes. Um, he was afraid of losing what had been handed to him. Um, and so he was constantly at war with himself and everyone around him in order to continue to keep the throne secure in the Tudor family. Right. It was his primary objective in life. Yeah. And, and so it, it informed every decision he made. Um, and obviously these six wives are evidence of that. Yes. So after he executed Anne... The very next day, he married Jane Seymour. Mm. The next day. Mm-hmm. Who is the only one who actually gave him a son? She, she had a son, Edward. Okay, She died in childbirth. And then, um, and then he had uh, Mary through Catherine. He had Elizabeth through Anne Boleyn. And he had Edward through Jane Seymour. Then his other three wives after that had no children. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you also, if you run dates on these kind of things, and, and if you look at it, Henry uh, divorced Catherine uh, because of the male heir issue and then had a daughter with Anne Boleyn. And Elizabeth was the result of that, Elizabeth I. She was born three months after the divorce. Mm. Okay, now we're adults here, right? Yeah. Okay, what's the human gestation period? Right, yeah. Okay. All right. So three months after he divorces his wife because she doesn't give him a male heir, he has a daughter with a another woman. Mm-hmm. And then he accuses her of infidelity and sure. treason. Yeah, it's absurd. This, yeah, it's a, it's totally absurd. And if you're an Anglican or even an Episcopalian, because they're, they're similar thing, but if you're an Anglican, this is the foundation of your church. This mm-hmm. is how it started. Yeah, yeah. But you know, if if you're coming out of a Catholic heritage, mm-hmm. um, this is part and parcel for, you know, this is the way the church goes in, of your, in your eyes. This is the way it looks. Yeah. Um, these kind of improprieties are common and. There's a lot to say about that. Yes. Um, so Edward's born. Mm-hmm. Um, Seymour dies in childbirth. Right. And then he he marries Anne of Cleves. Right. And the, the, there's a series of short-lived relationships here. Right. Anne doesn't even make it a year. Right. <laughs> before he marries <laughs> Catherine Howard. Yes. Um, that relationship lasts two years. And then Catherine Parr, um, before he dies in 1547, they're married for four years. Yeah, and she had the the, the last one, Catherine Parr, had the, had the good fortune to outlive him. Yeah, yeah. All right. Good for her. Catherine Howard got her head cut off also. Mm-hmm. There is a lot going on during this time. There's yes. a, there is uh, war um, and, and rumor of war surrounding France and England. Um, there are lots of controversies taking place. There's yep. the Protestant reformations going on in the background. The Catholic, um, you know, uh, counter-reformation is going on, the inquisitions, world travel. Uh, people are, are beginning, just, just like Columbus, are beginning to, mm-hmm. to go to North America and find new sailing routes. And 
And so we are, you know, on the cusp of enlightenment. Yes. The world is changing very, very rapidly. Yes. And um, this moment with Henry VIII represents for us a shift towards a, a, a decentralizing of the Catholic Church, the fact that, that it's doable, mm-hmm. right? There's a nation that can, that can break and, and, and make its own way, but then it invites, ultimately, freedom of religion. Yes. I mean, the long-term term implications is that, is that the church can become smaller and smaller and more, and more focused. Um, and so maybe talk a little bit about the, the takeaways uh, and, and the several, you know, the monumental things that happen in the Anglican church and why these moments are important um, yeah. to the development of freedom of religion and the choice of, of church. And here's where Henry factors into this thing because he is a very pivotal figure, but like you had mentioned before, he's staunchly Catholic going into it. He's staunchly Catholic all the way through to the day of his death, Mm -hmm. Uh, but he breaks from there. And uh, the Anglican Church is... Henry declared himself the head of the Anglican Church. So in other words, he has simply made the church, made English Catholicism the same thing as Roman Catholicism, and now I'm the Pope instead of this guy yeah, over he here. Yeah, he declares himself supreme over the church. Yeah, he's yeah. the supreme leader. Act of supremacy was passed um, in 1534. It was 1532 when he had his fight with the Pope. So that's it. We're done. Uh, I'm forming a new church. And a couple of years later, Parliament passes what is called the Act of Supremacy that makes uh, Henry not just the political ruler of of England, but the religious ruler of England also. Mm -hmm. He's the head of the church. Uh, So he becomes the Pope of England. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's not a not a Natilash difference between Anglican at that time and Catholicism, except for this is English Catholicism. Yeah. But the the thing to take away from that, as you mentioned, is that there's a now there's a nation who has defied the Pope. It's not just Martin Luther and one person who has defied the Pope. This is an entire nation who has said, no, we're not going to be Catholic any longer mm-hmm. and have broken that chain. Uh, even though there's not a not any difference between them theologically or practically in any sense whatsoever, uh, but there's a break, mm-hmm. and now this is just the erosion of the stronghold of Catholicism over the over the world, and it's that first little baby step away from that type of thing where we can now take the word of God and get it out to the ends of the uh, ends of the earth during that time. Mm-hmm. Henry has three children. He had, he before he died he he laid out a succession plan for them. Uh, he uh, obviously Edward was first because he was the son, even though he was the youngest. Uh, Mary was second in line if Edward couldn't, and then Elizabeth was third. Um, and all three of them would actually end up on the throne of England mm-hmm. uh, during. Uh, during that time after his death, right. uh, he relented later on in his life to, to add Elizabeth to that. Mm-hmm. Initially, when he um, offed um, his, her mother, Anne Boleyn, he had written her out, written Elizabeth out of his succession right. plan. Yeah. But at the end of his life, he, he put her back in. Yeah, and, she, and we'll learn more about this in the, in the next episode that we right. do. But, but she was in seclusion for quite some time, and there was controversy when Much. she was called up. There was a lot of controversy surrounding um, her authority. So, yes. 
Yes. But we'll, we'll come back to that. So we're still into this thing because he didn't, uh, Henry goes till 1547. So there's still a lot of things taking place during this time. William Tyndale um, publishes the, or translates the, the English New Testament in 1526. Well, that's right in the middle of, of Henry's reign. Mm-hmm. And Henry is staunch Catholic, so he's not going to allow anything biblical into uh, in, into the society of England. However, uh, it, so, so 1526, this is before the split with Rome in 1532. So he is viciously against William Tyndale. Tyndale is, is betrayed. He's executed. Uh, copies of his Bible have been um, hunted down and destroyed. Mm-hmm. He's doing this behind the scenes. But it's all of this is happening at the same time where that's bubbling up through, through Europe. The common man is getting the Bible. Um, 1536, he, um, Henry published what is called the Six Articles of mm-hmm. Faith, yeah. and that is the the basic standard doctrinal position that basically makes Henry the God on earth in in, in England mm-hmm. and keeps everything uh, staunchly Catholic. Um, new by. Um, New Bibles are coming out during this particular time. Revisions of Tyndale, Matthew's Bible comes out. Coverdale's Bible comes out during this particular time. But Matthew's Bible and Coverdale's Bible, uh, 1536, 1538, those are after the break mm-hmm. with Rome. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a pivotal time there because Tyndale is before the break with Rome. So Henry is viciously against Tyndale and anything he's doing. But these other guys now are taking Tyndale's work and updating it and putting the Word of God in the hands of the people. And now this is angering Rome. Right. And Henry's like, anything that angers Rome is fine with me. Yeah, yeah. So right. he's, he's vacillating back and forth. But he, is, le- but he leaves space. He leaves space for mm-hmm. um, men to operate and, and to do these things, um, th- the freedoms that they didn't really have before. Yeah, they've got a little freedoms because this is God taking, prying the fingers yeah. of Roman Catholicism off of the English church and using a disgusting pervert like mm-hmm. Henry VIII to do it. Yeah. So all of those things are... are really big and they continue to uh, to unfold in mm-hmm. in the coming stories that we're going to bring to light. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really would like to maybe end by talking about the the events that are important to um, the eventual theological reformation that that looks like baptisthood. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we as we inch our way that direction um, what what we're going to begin to see is that the puritans begin to rise up uh, right. in, in this kind of climate between Henry and Elizabeth. And um, they're not welcome, really, necessarily, but they do come into existence. Explain just briefly how that happens, how that unfolding takes place, how, how the, the issue of freedom of religion, freedom, the separation between church and state, these things that we hold to now... How, how is it that we're inching our way that direction in the storyline? We're inching our way, not that Henry is letting go of any of control politically or religiously of England, mm-hmm. but he's broken himself from Rome. So this worldwide do- domination of Roman Catholicism over the entire world now has um, one nation that has separated from it. Mm-hmm. So there is a... 
uh, there's a little bit of a crack there. There's an open opening in the um, in the door for people to start coming in. And as we mentioned, any th- during this time, Thomas Cranmer is Protestant, mm-hmm. and he's the Archbishop of Canterbury. And Henry appoints him to be the um, the chur- uh, one of the church officials. Mm-hmm. Well, he starts infusing some Protestant uh, things into right. the structure of the church in England. And Henry is conflicted with this thing because he doesn't like Protestantism, but at the same time, anything that angers Rome is cool with me. Mm -hmm. So I would rather, I I hate the Pope so much that I would rather appoint a man that I hate to a position because he's going to add to my hatred to the Pope, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And so it's that conflicted man that is, that God is using in all of his conflict to crack this door open to get the word of God into the hands of the, of the common man. And a lot of that liberty begins to take place during uh, Henry's reign. It seesaws back and forth many, many times. Um, so no, we can't have Tyndale because that's before the break. But yes, we can have Matthew and Coverdale because that's after the break. Mm-hmm. And now this is Protestantism. And those principles of freedom of religion freedom of thought, uh, the authority of Scripture over the authority of the structure of the church, Mm -hmm. those things begin to get infused into the populace in England during this time because the Word of God is getting into their hands. Mm -hmm. Um, One of Matthew's, or or Coverdale's great Bible is called the Chained Bible because it was chained to pulpits, not because uh, they wanted to keep it away from people, but, but because they didn't want it to be stolen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. people would come to church um, to to see the Bible for themselves and read it for themselves. And there were readings taking place and young boys and uh, families would just flock to the churches to hear what God said in his word. Mm-hmm. This is all during the reign of, of Henry VIII toward the end of his reign. He's allowing a lot of this stuff in here just to tick off Rome. Mm. Yeah. And God said, okay, I'll yeah. use whatever I need to use to do that. And it's it's prying those fingers off the people. Yeah. yeah. And as people begin to hear the Bible taught, mm-hmm. uh, they begin to develop their own theological views exactly. that affect their doctrinal positions, that affect their behavior, that affect the culture. And now you have people who are becoming true biblicists a step at a time. Yes. And that's where the birth of the Puritan movement comes from, mm-hmm. trying to purify... Um, Theology and purify worship through uh, that. That's what the name means, basically. So this is great. And this is a great moment, a great stepping stone towards Mm -hmm. the contention that we're going to have with Mary. There's a moment of of serious turning back. You know, Satan's not quite done. Right. Uh, And so we're going to learn about Mary and then we're going to learn about Elizabeth. Yes. And so we'll, we'll look at that in the next episode that mm-hmm. we have together. But, but Greg, thank you for this episode. Okay. Thank you for all the information uh, that you've given us and, and given it to us in a way that's, that's easy to understand. And also to be able to see God at work and preparing the world for truth yes. is uh, fascinating and, yeah. and we're grateful for it. We appreciate it. Yeah, and we thank you too for joining us for this episode of The Postscript. Um, Hopefully uh, you enjoyed what you heard today. Now, I know a lot of people have joined the show uh, over the last few months, over the last year, and maybe you haven't heard all of the episodes that we've done so far. In fact, the very first episode we ever did of The Postscript was a church history uh, episode. And so if you dare to go that far back into uh, the to, to the catalog, um, 
you can start from the very beginning and follow along uh, with all of the church history episodes. On YouTube, we've separated all of our episodes out into categories. And so you can find all the church history episodes in one place very easily. Uh, But we're grateful for the time you spent with us and uh, want to remind you that we offer classes on history uh, here at uh, the Living Faith Bible Institute. We offer a class called Church History that Greg Axe teaches. He spends 16 weeks uh, teaching us all about the church and, and to learn how to see God's plan at work in the lives of people over time. Uh, But then we're also offering a new class uh, recently uh, called Baptist History that focuses primarily on the history of Baptists and and how they came to be. Uh, Pastor Greg and and Dr. Alan Shelby also are teaching that course. And so that's something to look out for next semester. But we're grateful for the time that you spent with us today. Hopefully it was informative and helpful. Uh, We love you and we can't wait to spend more time with you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.